Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today, I'm going to break and depart from what I normally do, which is do a cold open that's a six degrees of separation for my guest, who today I'm very excited about uh, is Susanna Makos, who's the executive vice president of Fox Broadcasting Company and responsible and involved in the development of so many shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Bob's Burgers, and has been an executive at Fox through the development of Family Guy, Malcolm in the Middle, and so many other shows. But there's something I think that's more important than doing a cold open that's uh, relating to her. And I hope and I pray that she'll forgive me, but I think it's important since uh, this is the first time I've had a chance to address the passing of one of the greatest comedians of my generation or anybody else's generation, Robin Williams. And I thought, I might share a little story about my first time seeing Robin Williams live and how it was sort of a metaphor for the way the business works and how for every positive moment for certain people, sometimes there's moments that aren't so positive. And 
one of the things I was trying to do as a young entrepreneur when I was in Boston was I was trying to learn the most I could about comedy, about how it worked, how comedians performed, their timing, the way they interacted with people, and the whole business of comedy. And I knew I wasn't going to get that when I was in Boston. So I decided to travel to New York and watch comedy. And I decided to go to Los Angeles occasionally and watch comedy. And the first time I went to Los Angeles, I went to the comedy store. For those of you who aren't familiar with the way the comedy scene works here in Los Angeles, there is basically three iconic major clubs that have been in the Hollywood area for at least 25 or 30 years. And that's the Laugh Factory at Sunset, 8001 Sunset, I believe it is, near Crescent Heights. There's the Improv on Melrose around the same area of Crescent Heights. And there's the Comedy Store, which is a little farther west on Sunset Boulevard across from the Mondrian Hotel. And the Comedy Store is a very interesting place because it has three different rooms. It has the Belly Room, which is an 80-seat room that uh, does a lot of unique and interesting shows. It has the main room where, uh, if you've seen uh, certain concert films by Richard Pryor, they were filmed there. At least one of them was on the Sunset Strip, I believe. It holds about uh, 400 people, as I said. And then there's the original room, the room where you walk in. It's a dark black room. And it's a room where most everything happens that you want to be associated with at the comedy store. It's a room where extraordinary headliners come in mixed with people who are just paid regulars and veterans as well. And one of the first times I went to the comedy store, I was invited by a guy who I guess you could call the only mentor I really had in comedy who took me under his wing in Boston. His name was Chance Langton. And he was a guy who helped me to get in the business of comedy, become a better stand-up comedian, and a better businessman when it came to exploring how much more I could do in comedy. And he got a big break to come to L.A. and showcase for some agents and managers at the comedy store. And he had a prime spot on a Sunday night. And I'll never forget, I went to this place and it was buzzing. I mean, you couldn't find a seat in this place. It was the comedy boom of the 80s. And he had a great spot, probably going on around maybe 10 10, 15 at night, sort of like right after the halfway point. The crowd was hot. Everything was going great. And he was excited. Everything was on the line for him. And I was excited for him. And the way the Comedy Store original room works is it's a tag team. And what that means for those of you not in comedy, it's an unhosted show. So a comedian will go on stage, finish their act, say thank you, good night. 
and then bring on the next act. And there's a list on the wall, and it's generally followed, although people fall out here and there, but then they'll just go to the next person. And so I looked on the list, and I saw that Chance was on next, and I wished him good luck, and I could see him psyching himself up, as certain comedians do, as you see in the back of the room. Some of them are doing little exercises, kind of getting themselves psyched up to go on. And this was probably one of the biggest moments in his career. And there's a little walkway that you have that you stand at the back and right before you're getting to be introduced, you sort of make your way to the stage, sort of like a, a, a baseball player makes his way to the plate right about when he's about to be introduced right beforehand. And I'll never forget the act before Chance finishing his routine and the applause. And then he said, ladies and gentlemen, our next act is a special guest. And I looked over at Chance and he was inching closer to the stage. He's from out of town. And I know you're going to like him a lot. And Chance stepped closer to the stage. And then the comedian said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And Chance started walking to the stage more briskly. And then the comedian said two words that changed the night forever. Robin Williams. The place went mental. There must have been like a two-minute applause break of whistling and screaming and people yelling out everything from, you know, Mork to, you know, every movie that the guy had been into that point, which I believe he just finished Good Morning Vietnam. And it was an unbelievable scene of bedlam, except for one person, Chance Langton. He was just demoralized, lost, in a fuming, fuming, almost like tantrum behind the scenes in the back way where the bathrooms were. I went back to console him, but I don't think there was any consoling him at that point. And I just told him, don't worry about it. You'll go on after him and you'll knock him dead. And as I said the words, I probably knew in my heart that I wasn't being truthful, but I was just trying to give him some kind of encouragement to go on at the biggest moment in his career. I went back to my seat and I watched this man, Robin Williams, do something that I'd never seen before, a performance and a level of killing that was unmatched by anything I could ever imagine. His jokes per second, his jokes per minute, his jokes per... It was just unbelievable the level of power and improvisational skills that he had. He could do anything up there. And I'd never seen anybody take a crowd to the kind of levels that he took them to. 
and even in his own performances, the level of monotoneness and high energy and just passiveness on the stage and then the explosiveness into a character and then back out again. And I watched this man work for an hour. And when he said, thank you, good night, the crowd was like a jack in the box. They stood up like, I've never seen a standing ovation in a comedy club like that before. And if you're familiar with going to comedy clubs in your local city, chances are you've probably never seen a standing ovation in a comedy club that just has a bunch of comedians coming on for $6 and two drink tickets. But this guy changed the way I thought about comedy. He showed that there was a standard, not just an industry standard, there was a comedy standard that he had attained, that there was no way that almost any comedian in the world could ever, ever attain that level. And as he was walking off and high-fiving everybody, I realized something that he didn't introduce Chance Langton. He just left the stage. Probably hadn't been around the comedy store that often lately since he did all his movies and television shows. And so he wasn't really aware of the protocol to introduce the next act. So after an hour at around 11.15 or 11.20... People started going from their standing position and picking up their belongings and walking out. I could see Chance Langton waiting in the wings, just totally beside himself, not having any understanding of what was going on as the piano player ran to the piano where the mic was to try to introduce him in time to save the crowd but it was too late. As he introduced Chance Langton to the stage, Chance entered the stage and I could barely see him because there were so many heads in the way of people standing and walking out. He only had like 10 minutes set scheduled in the books and five minutes of his set was spent dealing with the fact of people walking out and I'm trying to make some kind of amends and get some kind of laughs with the people walking out, including many of the agents and managers that had come there to see him. In the last five minutes, he pulled it together as best he could with the remaining 22 people in the audience. But by then it was too late. The greatest comedian of the time of that decade and many decades further had taken that moment away from him. Not purposely, because that's what comedians do. It's a rite of passage. You work your way through the clubs and you get your opportunity to go on. And sometimes you have to bump comedians. So the greatest moment 
for myself of that decade and many decades further in a comedy club was the greatest moment that everybody will remember who was in that room that day, except for one person, Chance Langton. It wasn't a good day for him. And I always thought about that and how the world worked and how people dealt with setbacks and, and the defeat of this business. And as I reflect on Robin Williams' suicide, I am often reminded of so many people in our business that have so many ups and downs who don't really know how to handle it in a way where they can survive. Many survive, but many don't, who suffer from depression and mental illness. And I have been involved with many artists who do suffer. And I do the best I can to support them, knowing that there is nothing that I can do at all. Because in the end, it all falls with the person. And that's one of the most difficult things about depression and mental illness is because it's one thing to fix a problem when you have all your facilities. If your eyes are bad, you have all your facilities, you go to an eye doctor, you get an examination, you get your eyes checked, and you get a prescription for your glasses. And the problem is solved and fixed. But when you're dealing with depression, your view is skewed. One day, you're in a great frame of mind, and you have a clear head, and the next day you don't. And so, knowing this, you have to figure out a way to fix the problem. And you can't. You try your hardest when you're dealing with this and you go to doctors and you take different medications. But the different medications oftentimes wear off. They change. They change the effect they have on you. And it's very difficult to overcome. And there's so many people in our world that suffer from this and some have made it and some haven't people like talk show hosts like dick cavett entrepreneurs like larry flint actors and like mel gibson and richard dreyfus politicians like jesse jackson journalists like jane pauley athletes like meta world peace Comedians like Russell Brand and singers like Axl Rose and Sinead O'Connor. But oftentimes, it will take some of the greats, some of the geniuses, like Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, comedians like Richard Jenny, and now Robin Williams.
So I wonder what the lesson is about this cold opening. What I do know is that when somebody passes away in a way like this, a lot of people mourn, and I can only use my own advice to myself as I reflect on this horrible, horrible tragedy. I'd like to share something with you that I like to live by throughout the times when I've lost friends, loved ones, family members that I think relates to what we're all going through with Robin Williams. And that is, I have to believe that if Robin Williams were to look down and see all the sadness in the world from this horrible tragedy, if he had his choice to say one final thing to all the people in the world that were sad and hurting, I know in my heart he would say, please, please, if you've learned anything from my life, my work, my career, please celebrate my life. When you think of me, please think of joy, think of happiness, think of laughter. Please don't think of sadness or my life will have been wasted. And for me personally, I have to believe that. I have to believe that if he was looking down from heaven, he would say that to all of us. We don't know the pain he went through. We never will. But what we do know is this. We are all better off because of what Robin Williams gave of himself to us. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now about the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. My guest today, very, very excited. Uh, I'm going to read this bio, and sometimes it'll seem like uh, it's long, but it's important that I let everybody know what you're about. (laughs) Susanna Makos is the executive vice president of comedy programming development for the Fox Broadcasting Company. As head of comedy development of Fox, Makos is responsible for overseeing all of the network's half-hour current programming and comedy development initiatives in both live action and animation. In this role, she has cultivated many live action and animated comedies for the network, including New Girl, Raising Hope, Bob's Burgers, and The Mindy Project. She developed last year's Seth MacFarlane-produced sitcom Dads and the critically acclaimed Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which won a Golden Globe for Best Comedy Series. Her development has been lauded for presenting some of the funniest and most diverse voices, both in front and behind of the camera. She launched two new series this spring, Enlisted and Surviving Jack, and her current development slate includes the likes of Tina Fey, Will Forte, and producer-directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Prior to her role in development, she served as current programming executive at the network covering comedies such as Family Guy, Arrested Development, The Bernie Mac Show, and Malcolm in the Middle, as well as Prison Break and Boston Public. Before joining Fox, Makos began her career in development and current programming at Walt Disney Television, Touchstone Television, and Regency Television. Please welcome my guest today, the always talented the incredible Susanna Makos. Thank you. I am so excited because actually this is a very, very unique one that I'm doing because we are in Montreal in my hotel room. Henny Youngman used to say that the hotel room was so small that you could put your key into the door and break the window. (laughs) And uh, that's uh, pretty much what it is here. My guest today, Susanna Makos, I have to share something that's very funny before I uh, go into this uh, line of questioning. I I love this. And uh, and, uh, maybe, uh, you know, email and text do not reflect tone. So you can't tell when somebody's (laughs) making a joke or not. And I said to... (laughs) Suzanne, I said, uh, listen, we're going to do the podcast in my hotel room. And she said, well, if we're doing it in your hotel room, I'm going to have to bring my husband. (laughs) To which I emailed her back. And she said something like, well, you know, uh, maybe we'll do it in my hotel room, something like that. And they said, if I do it in your hotel room, I'll have to bring my husband. (laughs) Which is kind of odd because uh, I don't have a husband. (laughs) I'm excited about this. And uh, before I start asking questions i just want to say to everybody uh from the montreal just for last festival here it's been amazing uh yesterday uh, i interviewed uh, kent alterman uh it was incredible about you know 70 to 100 people showed up which uh, i was shocked that i thought there was going to be a party of one <laughs> and uh i was just really concerned about it and and kent 
uh, is is the kind of guy who is really, really, um, he's got a very, very dry sense of humor and he can really get you and he can go toe to toe with you. And I was, I was wondering whether uh, he was going to enjoy it or not because he, he, he wasn't sure if he was going to do it, but Doug Herzog had done it and um, he did it and it was just so incredible, the journey that he took us on. And that's why I'm excited about being here. Uh, with you because uh, I'm going to crush Kent. I know you are. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I wanted you here uh, for many, many reasons because uh, number one, I always felt like you had this overwhelming charisma that I know this sounds odd, but most executives, they always have this game face on that, that, and you just, you just walk in. This is the thing I'll share with the audience is that, when you take a pitch meeting, you have no idea what anybody's gone through that day. So you don't know if you're meeting with somebody who just broke up with their boyfriend, is getting a divorce, or had a baby last week and is the happiest person on earth. <laughs> or more likely got yelled at by their boss five seconds before you go into the meeting. <laughs> yeah, so you just, you just have no idea. And so you're in a situation where you have to figure it out. And I... Every time I've ever been in a meeting with Susanna, just there's just like a, I don't know, you, you just, even if the odds are that you're going to sell it, are slim and none and slim left town, you always <laughs> felt like you were going to feel good when you went in there and feel good when you went out of there. Well, I have a very specific way that I like to hear pitches and I teach all the people who work for me. And, you know, I feel like, while it might be one of nine for me that day, it's really important to the person pitching. They're at Fox. This is their big shot. And I like to be, you know, very welcoming. I hate seeing people nervous. That makes me feel bad. So I always am trying to make people feel better. And people are usually, not always, but a lot of times really nervous. And I call it like I host a talk show. Like before I go into any room, I just take a deep breath and I'm like, okay, this means a lot to them. And I'm like, host your talk show. And I try to be funny and nice and set a nice tone. And that's something that I've done, you know, in the nine years I've been hearing pitches and it's, it gets, it's very exhausting in my October. I'm usually like really, you know, and I don't do it every time, but it, by October it's really hard, but you know, in August and September, I'm pretty fresh and I can do it. It's the 300th or 400th pitch that I start to like go downhill and I can't keep it up. But I, re it's really important to me that I create that energy for the writer or the producer or the performer, whoever it is. Got it. Got it. Take me way back, way, way back to the first time that you ever had an inkling that you wanted to be in this business. Where were you? Where did you grow up? What was your family like? What was the inspiration to wanting to be in the entertainment business in any way, shape, or form? Well, I grew up in a little town in Washington State actually called Waitsburg. I always say Walla Walla, but I really grew up in Waitsburg, which was a town of about 800 people. And my mom, for whatever reason, they, we did not have TV. So I didn't have TV. I had TV. We had TV until I was like four. Then my mom got rid of the TV and we didn't have TV till I was like 15. Not for any like highbrow intellectual reason. I think we probably couldn't afford it. I don't know. So then I got TV back when I was 14 and I felt like 
it was like a person crawling through the desert and like getting like a giant drink of water. It was so exciting and so just amazing to like be a part of pop culture and know what was going on. And so I, I really started and I, I said this on my panel yesterday, like I came home from school every day and I ate a sleeve of Oreos dipped in milk and I watched sitcoms and that was what I did. And it was my favorite thing in the world. And I watched all of them. I watched one day at a time and the Jeffersons. I watched MASH. I never really liked MASH, by the way. I watched, um, you know, Happy Days. I watched them all. And I that was what I grew up doing. You know, my we didn't have play dates like we didn't go. I didn't do I did sports when I was in fifth grade. But until then, I watched TV. And so then when I was in college, Friends and Seinfeld were a really huge thing. And I I was so obsessed with Seinfeld. Like I was so just watching that show and feeling like that was what I I can't explain it. It was just such an influence on me. And I said to the guy I was dating at the time, I said, I wish there was a job where you like helped people do their sitcoms. Like, wouldn't that be cool if I got, I don't think I could write a sitcom, but like where you just help them. And he was like, well, that there's, there's no job like that. And I was like, yeah, no, you're probably right. (laughs) So I went to college in Dallas and then I moved out here to get away from that same boyfriend. I moved to LA (laughs) and who is a little crazy. And I moved to LA. You should send him a fruit basket. I know I should really. And I moved to LA and I was, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, that was what I thought I would do. I was, I was a history major. So I felt like, okay, I'll be a, an attorney. Cause I didn't know what else that was, what else you could do. And, um, I thought being an attorney was like being on Allie McBeal. Like I was like, Oh, I'll wear cute suits and I'll like carry a folder and be like chatty. And so I, I worked part time for a lawyer in LA um, he's the guy I really should send a fruit basket to. And I was like, oh, this job's terrible. Like, who would want to do this job? This is a horrible. This is nothing like Ally McBeal. What? <laughs> he was like an ambulance chasing, like, he was a nice guy. But he was just, it was just a terrible job. Why? Why did you want to work for a lawyer? Because I just I didn't know I was a history major and I didn't know what else I could do. Like, I guess deep down, I thought maybe I'd be an actress and I'd get discovered. And I knew knew that wasn't going to happen by then. There was a great comedian from Boston who I remember this great joke. He said, I'm I'm studying history in college, which is what I'll be in a few years. (laughs) It's totally true. And so then I uh, (laughs) he fired me. This lawyer fired me on my answering machine. You were fired. I was fired. He he left a message on my answering machine and he said, it was Christmas break and I, I'd gone home. He gave me a week off and he said, so I wasn't in, in my apartment. And he said, uh, you don't seem to like this job very much. And I, I hated the job and I would <laughs> never would have quit. And I was, because he paid me pretty well. And I was so relieved, but it was very funny because my roommates came to pick me up at the airport and they were like, uh, you, uh, you have a message. I was like, oh, really? And they're like, yeah, they wouldn't make eye contact with me. I was like, what's on the machine? They're like, there's a message for you in the machine you have to listen to. So they knew I got fired before. These were the old machines where it actually, you know, played it and you heard it out loud in the room. Yeah. So they knew that I was fired and I was so relieved. So then I was sort of, you know, I was 23 and I was like back to square one. And I said, oh, I'll wait tables for a while. So I started waiting tables in this restaurant in uh, the gardens on Glendon in Westwood. Remember that? They made your guacamole and. It was a good, it was a good gig and I worked and I was making good money and I met the guy who's now my husband and how'd you meet him? Uh, we were, he was a waiter at another restaurant nearby and all waiters in LA hang out with each other cause they know each other. And now, so. I, I know I'm digressing here, but I think this is always important right. for life things as well. 
They say that a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did I, you know? I knew immediately. Yeah. Unbelievable. I did. And it was good because, you know, being married, we've been married now 13 years. We've been together 16. And like, you have a lot of ups and downs. But I can always go back to that time of when he walked in the room. I was like, oh, I'm going to marry that guy. So it is a nice, it is a good thing to have when you're, you know, and I'm not just saying this because you're across from me and I'm trying to, I, I sincerely, when you tell me you've been married 13 years and you've been with this guy 16 years, I'm thinking to myself, were you a waiter when you were six? Oh, I'm 39. I'll be 40 this year. So yeah, so I, um, so I went, so, was, so he loves movies. He is obsessed with movies. He's one of those people. He's seen every movie. He's never walked out of a movie. Like even bad ones he'll sit through. He loves movies. And I said, well, I don't feel like that about about movies, but I do love TV. So I started doing something and this is, this, this was a lot, it was before the internet and before any of this stuff, but I just started telling everybody I met, like, I'm interested in getting into TV. Do you know how I do that? The 10th person I told, he said, well, I have an internship at Fox in comedy development. I'm not going to do it anymore. Would you like to do it? So I went into Fox where I work now. I was 23. And I said, to the girl, her name is Sheila. I owe her a lot. Um, it's uh, ironic, like we both have kids in kindergarten right now. We're parents together, but um, at our school. But she, she was like, "Well, when can you work?" And I was a waitress, and I work nights. So I said, "Well, I can work every day. I'm, you know, I'm available." And she was like, "Great." So I started interning at Fox, and that was the beginning. That's uh, you know, I tell everybody on the podcast, and one of the first things that anybody said on a podcast, I believe. You know, it was Doug Herzog where he said, you know, you need to find an affiliation. You need to find some place where you believe that is the kind of venue that's going to be great for what you want to do. Whatever it is, I don't care what you do. If you love baseball, then intern at a baseball team. And if you can't get the gig at the professional team, get the gig yeah, at the AAA true. team, wherever it is. And And the thing is... What people don't understand, and I, I, I love internships. I actually have probably six interns now working with me. Three of them are here. No, these guys are actually <laughs> professionals. <laughs> but I, you're, you're right. It appears like they are interns. But they no, were, I just kidding. If guys. these guys they're are great. interns, you know, when you're a 30, as Jay Moore would say, when you're a 30-year-old intern, you might as well just pack it in. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anything can happen in any age. But, uh, but the thing is, is that... There's these there's these stories of people who who go into these things and and really make it work. The podcast that I recently did with Andrew Panay, who's mm -hmm. the um, who now runs his own company, but he produced Earth Echo and Wedding Crashers, and he started as an intern at Tapestry Films, and he used to get up at four o'clock in the morning, get there before everybody else, leave before everybody left get coffee for everybody, do whatever. He says he still gets coffee for people. <laughs> and his thought process was, is that if I can just get in there and make my mark, I know people are not going to be able to work as hard as me. And, you know, one of the things you said to me before the podcast started, and I loved it, and you said it, and it was tongue-in-cheek, and it was, but it was funny. I said I had a great interview with Kent Alterman here, <laughs> and you said something to the effect of, I'm going to bury Ken Dalterman. And, <laughs> no, and, but, we have but, a very different style. But, but, that, yeah. <laughs> but, but the point being is what you said, and, and I think it should be noted because I think we got a long journey here in this pocket. But, <laughs> but that's the kind of attitude 
even if you're joking, that you have to have when you're an intern. Because when you go into an internship at Fox, there's tons of interns. And then there's the assistants who are ahead of you. Yeah. And then ahead of the assistants are the junior executives. And then ahead of the junior executives are the ones that just getting started and getting into development. And then be, be ahead of that are the, you know, the other people and the VPs and then the president. And you've got a long way to go to get where you're going. And there's a lot of navigation and there's a lot of people that don't know how to navigate. And some people who you've worked with, and we'll get to this later, who have been great executives are no longer at Fox. There's people who are no longer at Fox that weren't great executives. Yeah, that's for sure. But everybody's seen somebody come and go who you're like, my God, I think, I think that guy exceeded his expectations or woman. Why aren't they here? And normally they're either not there because of a decision they made yeah. or they're not there because they didn't know how to navigate with people properly. It's and they, you can be, like if you're an actor, you could be the greatest talent. Look, Roseanne had one of the greatest shows of my generation. She's not working. Yeah, she's working on Last Comic Standing as a judge. But even she would say if she was here... She doesn't want to work on Last Comic Standing as a judge. She wants to be on television acting and make a relevant difference in the world, which she knows she can. But she's a judge on Last Comic Standing right. because she's burned a lot of bridges. So there's not a lot of things left to do. And so if somebody's going to give you that shot and pay you a half a million dollars for 10 or 12 episodes, you take it. Right even though you have money because you want to show people that you're a good person and you have compassion. But sometimes it's tough to undo all the bad things that people remember. Now, our audience, our listening audience, doesn't know that Roseanne did things that hurt people. Our listening audience doesn't know that she threw scripts at writers and fired over 20 writers during her time. <laughs> Our audience probably doesn't remember the podcast with Matt Williams when he was a, uh, created the show uh, and she fired him after 13 episodes. And she wrote in her yellow uh, notepad after the pilot, when this show goes to number one, these are the people I'm going to fire. And then you have people like Ray Romano who worked with Phil Rosenthal for seven years. Right. And that's why, you know, Ray Romano will always work and will always, anybody would ever give, would always give him a shot and do whatever it has to do. But Roseanne doesn't. And it's the same in the executive ranks. It is. It's true. People know when somebody's been an asshole and they don't get normally hired back. And if they do get hired back, they get that one chance and whatever. And and I just want to say one other thing on camera wise, somebody who has been much maligned, but is a genius is Keith Oberman mm. and, and Keith well-documented behind the scenes has had very difficult times with network executives and creative executives. And he didn't work. I don't think he worked regularly in a regular gig for 10 years. Yeah. But Finally, someone says, you know what? Maybe he's changed. Maybe he'll be a little bit better. And true to form, he has been nicer, friendlier, and his show is brilliant. And that's why 
It's a hit, but I'm sorry. So let's get back. So you're interning. And how do you make your mark to move up the ranks when so many people there want to climb ahead of you? Well, interesting thing about what year was that? 1997 is I was there and I I guess I just didn't really understand. I was at Fox and I was reading all the scripts and I was trying to understand. I didn't really understand what people what everyone was doing, because like you said, there's assistants and there's executives and you're sitting in this cubicle and you didn't. I just didn't really understand. So they let me sit in a pitch. And so who, I, let, who let you the assistants asked the executives. It was Mike Clements at the time and Cheryl Bear and Kelly Kolchak was there. And they were like, can the interns sit in a pitch? And they were sure. Fine. So I'm in the pitch and I'm taking notes. And I have my like nice top on. I had like one nice shirt. And in that moment, when the writer started talking and I looked at Cheryl Bear, who used to like sit in this chair that's now in my office and curl up really small in this tiny ball, which I never realized, I guess I could do that in that chair. It doesn't seem professional, but she would like take our shoes off and curl up in this tiny ball. I realized what was happening. Writers were telling their ideas for television shows to the, like it all clicked, like everything I've been doing outside and everything I was, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's what I want to do. I want to do, I don't want to do what she's doing. And I was, I was taking notes. I wish I saw the notes. I, w- I remembered anything about the pitch, but, and I got tears in my eyes because it was like, I know what I want to do. And I, if I like, I, it was the kind of thing when you're in your twenties of like, I oh, maybe a lawyer, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I was like, no, this is my path. And since that moment, I have never, ever questioned it. I've never been like, you know, you work with people and they're like, well, I'm going to go to graduate school. And I would be like, why? Why would you leave? Like, this is the, I never, ever thought about doing anything else since that time. And so that was 16 years ago. And I I haven't worked at Fox the whole time. I did some other places, but I'm back. I have a bigger job than even Cheryl did now. And I used for a while, I had that exact same office. So it's pretty cool that like my journey has from that minute has come back to where I am now. So it's cool. But it was I never, I knew, and I never questioned it, not once, even now, you know, I, I'm, I, I still love my job. I think my job is awesome, you know? When you watch people who you've worked so closely with leave the position, like, let's say like Kevin Riley did, who's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, you work with somebody, you work with many leaders. Yeah. And I'm on my sixth president. Now. Yeah, it's like almost like a, uh, a an athlete on a team that's changing coaches. Yeah, it is exactly what it's like. And actually. and it's very like it because a lot of baseball and uh, and basketball and football coaches uh, leave their posts, resign, get fired, and then they come back with another team. The greatest coach of my time, Bill Belichick was an average coach on one team and then went to another team and became great. Um, You know, Bob Greenblatt at NBC, you know, when he was at Showtime, there was no real estate. Everything worked. There was not, you know, you you try, you'd pitch a show to him and you go in and you'd say, why am I here? Because there's nothing that's not working. And then he came to NBC and it was like, a huge challenge but now he's seeing that things are turning around and as true to form a great executive can do but when you see somebody like kevin riley this this always kills me because 
He's at NBC before Fox. I believe he has five or six shows that have gone on the air while he was there that that worked. That are like iconic shows. Iconic shows. Friday Night Lights, The Office, yeah. Uh, 30 Rock yeah, 30. and Heroes, uh, My Name is Earl. And then all of a sudden, you know, somebody says, you know what, uh, we're going to make a change. Yeah. To Ben. We're going to bring in a guy who's never done this before, but, uh, you know, who might not have a stable uh, life as you do, but, uh, you know, we're going to make a change. We we know you've done a great job, but uh, it's time. And But the true thing about our business is, and you'll be the first to attest to it, and I always say this to anybody. If you do great work, it doesn't matter if somebody fires you for whatever reason. You're always going to get another gig. There's no way if you're better than everybody else and you're a leader of men and women that you're not going to get another gig. And that's one of the things I actually love about your energy is that I know you know in your heart that no matter what in this crazy, unstable business happens, you will always work. Well, there is a certain level, too. I always say, like, you don't want to get fired when you're a manager. Like, <laughs> if you're a manager and you get fired, or not even if it's your fault, that's a really hard thing to come back from because you're competing against other managers. Like, when I got my director bump, I was like, okay, I'll be fine. Like, I can always get a director job somewhere. I'll be a director of current. I can pay my bills. I make enough money that I can pay my student loan. Like, director of anything you're fine so that and, and once you go up even more of that you're like okay i can you know i i haven't you know eventually you level out and it's hard to get harder to get jobs but i'm not worried about that because i don't you know I, I wouldn't be afraid to go back down if i had to so so when you're in the company ranks and you're 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 watching people leave or be fired constantly is there a point in time where you know as you're moving up the ladder where you you are there's a morale problem because everybody's walking on eggshells. When I, when I, when I interviewed Sandy Grushaw, you know, here's a guy who worked his way up. From, when did you do that? Uh, about a month ago. Cool. And, um, he's a fascinating guy because he, you know, he'd gone through every stage of the game. And then one day after 25 years, you get the call from Rupert and it's like, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to make a change and our first course of action is going to, you know, bring in a Hallmark movie. And because, uh, you know, he used to say and and he said the philosophy of Fox and you were there uh, during a lot of this was contrarian programming. Yeah, it's true. And uh, and then, you know, things it changed. But I keep getting away from it. I'm sorry. So you're you're, you're you, the feeling of morale with people around. Is it is it difficult to stay positive when you when you know that shoes are dropping all over the place? Here's the thing I would say, and this is what I said to my team because we just went through that, you know, with Kevin deciding to move on, and it's there's never been a time this hasn't been good for me. Like every time we've had a big change, it's ended up being great for me for for one reason or the other. I mean, and so you know when Gail left, and I would say this to Gail like. Gail liked me. She didn't love me. Gail Berman. Gail Berman, yes. So, and I worked with Gail since I was 23 years old, but she, you know, she thought I was okay. I covered Arrested Development. 
she had a lot took a lot of heat for that show so she sort of associated with me with something that gave her a lot of problems if she didn't love you you wouldn't be there <laughs> well she likes me but she didn't love me i had other people that like me and i was a very low level and so it was fine then when gail left peter lagori came who really i just loved him great guy he liked programming he didn't love it he loved marketing but he was great to me he facilitated a couple of promotions for me and then when peter brought kevin in everything changed i mean under kevin peter Chernin. peter no peter lagori peter lagori kevin riley yeah. and everything changed for me because kevin and i just clicked so much and you know he's such a fantastic executive and like one of uh, the first meeting he ever came into i'd never met him i'd never you know he worked at nbc and i didn't I didn't know anything about him. The first meeting he came into our development meeting, I'll never forget when he walked in and I was like, oh, I'm going to work for him for a long time. Kind of like with my husband. Like it was just so clear to me that like that was going to be a match. And we, you know, uh, we had a lot of ups and downs. Sometimes he hates me, I'm sure. But he would say he loves me and hates me at the same time. But we I learned so much from him and it's been so great for me. So that could have been terrible. So I said to my team, look, Gary and Dana, um, Gary Newman and Dana Walden are now running my company and running the studio and gary and uh dana they were running uh 20th century fox the actual production company that was the the goal was the in-house servicing uh production company for the broadcast network that's the goal doesn't always happen that way right. uh, and now they they're overseeing everything and i I know that's going to be great. I, I mean, I know it's going to be great for the company. It's a long time coming. I've worked with them, you know, tangentially for a long time. And I just feel like, oh, great, good. There's so little to catch them up on. They're, they know everything they understand. You know, we'll see. It's just started. But I'm really excited about that. So, I, you know, my feeling is it's it's always been better for me. So I have no reason to believe that it won't continue to be. And, you know, yeah, some people it might not be a match, whatever, but... I just feel like I have to trust that I'm doing the right thing and that, you know, I love my job and that I do my job pretty well. And, you know, I just go from there. You take it day by day. Got it. So you're interning there. Take me through your journey. So I'm interning there. I do it for like three months. One of the uh, assistants is like there's a another assistant job opening. So I went to be an assistant for Stephanie Levine when she was working at Touchstone and then when Gail Berman opened Regency on the lot, she had Stephanie come over to be the head of current. And I went with her to Regency. So that was when I started on the Fox lot in 1999. I've been on the lot since 99. And so then I've eaten in every place on the lot. There's nowhere I haven't eaten. So she just liked you, but she brought you over to Regency. No, well, she brought Stephanie over, who she liked. I was just an assistant. Who Got came it. Over. Okay. So then when... Gail left Regency after making a very successful company. We did Malcolm in the Middle. We did um, a show called Roswell, which, you know, Katie Heigl was in. Mm -hmm. We did, uh, I'm blanking on the other show. Anyway, Malcolm was the big show. And they asked Gail to run the network. So Gail went to run the network. I stayed for a little while after that. And then my best friend and mentor, and the reason I'm here, Tracy Katsky, is um amazing yeah so she was the head gail asked her to be the head of comedy at the network and so she knew me um and said why don't you come be my assistant and and then i'll promote you in nine months so i was an assistant for almost five years that's the important thing or maybe four years i was an assistant for a very long time and i thought after three years like oh i know everything i'm working this small production company i i know everything i'm so plugged in 
two weeks after being the assistant on Tracy's desk, who was the head of comedy at the time, I thought, oh my God, I, I don't know anything. Like I was really, that was the real education as working for the head of comedy at a network. That was, that was the hardest job I've ever had. Why? Well, at that time she was, we were, they would hear like 500 pitches. I had to set all the pitches. There wasn't so much technology. 500 I, pitches for a development yeah. season for comedy and drama or just, no, just comedy. comedy. So just to let our audience know um, how it works um, in network television and it, and for Fox, when Kevin came in, I think he, he made a philosophy that he was going to develop year round, yeah. but for the most part, network television, what happens is this is the way it works. I'll share this with you guys and I'll start at a point where it uh, it makes sense. So what happens is around, um, I would say, after July 4th, yeah. um, it starts the pitches. Normally, I'm not saying networks don't take comedy pitches then. But for the most part, they work hard on getting the drama locked down first and making sure that the dramatic shows that they're taking pitches for, they hear everything early because dr dramas tend to, I don't know why, and Suzanne is probably going to explain to us, they take a longer time to develop and get going and make work, maybe because they're hours and the comedies are, are half hours. Too. Yeah. You have to shoot them in like, you have to start in January, really. And then the comedies, they start taking meetings. Don't get me wrong. I've taken meetings in July for comedies and she'll take meetings too, but it's not as urgent and comedy development can go for uh, until before Thanksgiving. There's times where it goes after Thanksgiving. And in the case of uh, one of the most successful shows in the history of television, Two and a Half Men, that was sold after everybody had closed their doors and they said their money was out and it was sold in February. And they did the pilot in late April and it's... Uh, the most successful show on television right now, longest running, maybe the third longest running. So anything can happen. So even if Susanna says to somebody, we're closed, yet Steven Spielberg says, you know, I have we a comedy. We're never really closed. <laughs> you were never really closed. But, you know, for most networks, even if Steven Spielberg or Jerry Bruckheimer say, you know what, I have this last minute thing. I know it's January 7th and you spent all your money, but can you hear this? Well, yes, we can, Jerry. You can well, come and budgets in. used to be a lot bigger when Tracy was the head. So that's why we, you know, we just heard so many pitches and I was in charge of taking all those phone calls, prioritizing them, scheduling them, making sure everyone had a drive on that came on, making sure everyone, you know, that was really, you're, I'm, you're seeing like a, a thousand people a week are coming through. <laughs> I mean, you know, it feels like that's probably really more like 500, five, if you had 50 pitches, each pitch has five people, let's just say. That's 250 people you're like logistically getting through the doors a week and things get screwed up and things are people are mad. And that was a really hard job. I mean, I, I, I really I learned a lot, but it was hard. And um, out of out of the 500 average pitches during that time, how many people or pitches was a deal made to at least write a script? Well, now I don't hear 500. I know, but back then. Back then, I don't know. She, You know, she probably made a hundred, did 100 scripts. So 20%. Yeah. That's a lot. It was a lot. We would, They would do 100 
When I even started, I would do 100. And so here's something that'll probably depress our audience about television. Back then, 520 script deals. I'm sorry, 100 100 script deals. All right. Now come December, how many of those 100 go to pilot? 10, probably. 10? Maybe 12. Got it. Let's just say there's 10. Yeah. How many of those pilots uh, go to series? Two. Two. So here's How many your, get renewed for the second year? How many get renewed for the second year? Sometimes zero. Sometimes, sometimes zero. one. So just to let you know, to just get your show on the air, your odds are one in 250, 250 to one. So where I'm going with the schedule here, and I'm sorry, I took a little detour. So the pitches get heard through that time. They choose the ones that they're going to pick for people to write a script. People write the script. Sometimes people uh, tell white lies and they pitch in the room and they say, we don't have a script. And then they make the script deal. And miraculously, (laughs) the script shows up two weeks later and you think, wow, this person's prolific. (laughs) And but they've already blown the dust off the script and adjusted it to make their money. And then normally from Thanksgiving through the break of, um, you know, the holidays. And there's always in, in, in our business, it's this crazy thing where in December, it just the agencies and the networks decide when they're just going to shut down completely. It's the best. And then, but during that time, there are people reading and there are people, and that's the tough part about the network executive is that that vacation isn't normally it's vacation. especially bad for drama. Yeah. Drama, they work those whole two weeks. Yeah, it's so really you're, you're, at, you're, you're on vacation with your kids and you're in yeah. a situation where you're reading by the pool everything. And then you're making decisions with your network president, which is going to go, which isn't. After they make the decision, let's say they're doing 10 pilots, those pilots normally get shot in a normal network schedule between, I'd say, the earliest February And then they go through March, April, some, if they're really pushing it, go into like the first week of May and go in full mode of 24 hour to get it all ready for the network meetings, which normally are somewhere on the first week of May. And they sit in rooms and they review pilots and they decide what they're going to pick up, what's going to be the mid-season. And then they make their announcements. And then the announcements are when they go to Radio City Music Hall in New York and announce to the advertisers and the country what they're going to do. And each network has a different day. And then they develop and decide what they're going to, you know, they they decided what they're going to pick up and then they'll, they will cast recast and work on those shows simultaneously that summer while they develop and gear up for the next. So that's how that works. That's my year. So, um, hardest job in the world Tell us your biggest fuck up as an assistant oh. during that time and who did it involve and, and what the happened. The time Something About Mary was like a huge movie and a, an assistant from, it, we didn't do anything really on email then. It was not an email job. We did everything on the phone and the assistants would call and say, I want to set this pitch. I want to set this pitch. And I would write down all the pitches in this notebook and then I would go to Tracy or the other people in the department and say like, okay, what priority are these and who needs to be in them? Because sometimes your bosses are in pitches if they're high level people or whatever. So this girl on the phone from William Morris is like, it's the the Farrelly brothers. The Farrelly brothers are coming in. And I'm like, oh my God, the Farrelly brothers have a pitch. So I go into Tracy. I'm like, we got to set this right away. It's the Farrelly brothers. And she's like, okay, wow. I don't, okay, right. And it's so busy. And she's like, great. And I said, I think Gail Ehrman, our boss should be in that. She's like, absolutely. So I get time on Gail's calendar. I get this whole thing. I get everything set up. And the day before... 
the assistant calls and goes, you know, I said the Farley brothers, right? Like it's the Farley brothers who were like this other, I can't even remember who they were now. And I was like, I had, I was like very excited running it's up. probably and Chris them. Farley's brother. It probably might've been, I guess, was Chris alive then? I don't even remember. Anyway. So that was a little bit, it was like a big thing. And everyone was talking about how I had screwed up and I'd made this big thing. But you didn't screw up because it didn't, they didn't get to the meeting. <laughs> yes, you could true. tell Gail. That's true. At least the Farley brothers didn't come into the meeting. That was a bad screw up though. They were, and everyone was just thought that was the funniest thing. And it just went all around town. Like, oh, you were the girl who thought the Farley brothers <laughs> were the Farley brothers. And I was very embarrassed. Like, tell that. us about one that somebody else did one time put together this huge it sounds so stupid now but like at the time it's a big deal huge notes call for you know it was brian grazer at the time and like all these really high people and they're all in the notes call and they're like where are the writers and the assistant had forgotten to get the writers <laughs> so then when the writers weren't available i didn't know so there's like 20 people on hold all talking to each other and then realizing the writers are never coming and having oh. to admit that you didn't call the writers is embarrassing like that's a bad one like oh. that makes the assistant look really bad <laughs> but like you know and those all dumb things I have a great, this is a funny story. I don't think Kevin, Kevin wouldn't mind if I told this. So Kevin has, this is important learning for young people who might listen to this. Kevin Riley. So Kevin Riley has two assistants and an intern. He has like a car issue or something. So he needs someone to come to his house and pick him up and take him to work that day. I forgot why. So the intern is going to do it. And the intern's going to drive his car <laughs> and pick up Kevin. And the Kevin, intern's driving his car. The, the, intern's, the intern's car. car, but it all worked out. The intern's happy to do it. He lives over on the west side. No big deal. The intern's going to drive. He's going to pick up Kevin, bring him back to the office. Not a big deal. So Kevin, being Kevin, is like 10 minutes late. So he calls the intern on his cell phone. He's like, just, I'm late. I'm running 10 minutes late. Just go grab a juice or something and then come in 10 minutes. So 10 minutes go by and Kevin's standing outside 15 minutes go by and 20 minutes go by and 25 minutes go by and he calls the assistant and he's like oh or the intern he's like oh I'm, I'm on my way so he comes he's 30 minutes late he comes in and kevin gets in the car with him and he's drinking like a giant jamba juice the assistant or the intern and kevin's like what what happened he's like oh man the line at jamba juice was really long <laughs> and kevin's like oh okay well and he goes did you get me one he goes no man i didn't even think of it so the whole way kevin's 30 minutes late and this assistant or this intern is drinking a job just like taking giant sips and kevin's just sitting alone in the car and when we got in he was like get fucking rid of that this is that intern that and we called that intern jamba for two years we're like oh there's jamba how about but jamba? you kept him i think we did i don't remember what happened i don't even i literally don't even remember his name but i would jamba. be like what was he doing like you don't really go get juice when Kevin says you get juice. You just go sit there and wait and come back. And then if you do go get juice, get one for him. It was just an amazing story. Just Kevin driving and watching him drink that juice the whole way. We love that story. Has Jamba moved up the I'm ladder? I'm sure he's probably a VP somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Any girl wouldn't be still working, but he's probably... What's his name? I can't even remember. But yeah. You know, you you collect those things. Those just epic... So uh, if you're if you're gonna pick up someone important, <laughs> be on time even if they tell you to go away and it bring don't go get a juice. Like basically just don't. Even if they say go get a juice, just wait. Wait outside. That's the lesson. It's a good lesson. <laughs> All right, so keep going. So you're in your assistant, you're and for assistant, five years, you're setting up pitches as the hardest thing so in the hard. world. And then I get promoted. Now before you go, uh, uh, did Tracy invite you into any you, you yeah. were invited into a meeting before you even belonged in a meeting that inspired you 
how long before she invited you into a meeting and why would she invite you into a meeting? She would just be like, if we're running low on people or needed somebody to take notes, I would go in. But I was really busy. I Sometimes I'd be like, I can't. I got to be here for the next one. But it was okay because I, you know, that was when, too, it was Tracy, um, Jane Wiseman at the time, you know, Jane uh, Greenstein at the time and Quan Fung. Who uh, is a guest of the podcast as well. Yeah, so we would all... After the day would end, I would go in with them and they would talk about all the pitches they heard. And we were just a very collaborative group. All of us, none of us had kids and all of us, you know, so we just we worked till like nine a lot of the times just talking about the pitches. I got to hear their feedback. And so it, it was even not being in them it was just so invaluable that time that nine months was that was a really special time in my career it was hard. But it was the, that was a fun group. Of Do us. you remember the first pitch that she told you, hey, I want you to take no, this? One. I don't remember. I remember when they heard the pitch for Arrested Development. I wasn't in it, but I remember them coming out of it and being really excited and that Ron Howard had signed something. Mitch had made a um, Mitch Hurwitz, tree. who's Mitch the creator of the show, had made a family tree of the Bluths. And Ron had signed it and autographed it for Tracy. And it, it hung in her office for a really long time. I wonder where that is. But yeah, so I remember that. Like, those are the things I remember. But, you know, the volume was so, it was a crazy time. Now, I, I just want to ask you about this because um, you said something earlier that was kind of fascinating about pitches. And I, I think that. I think that our audience doesn't get to know the right. inside scoop of a pitching. So before you get to the point where you move up to the next point, I'd love you to talk to the audience about number one, you said you, you have a specific style that you train people on how to take a pitch. Yeah. I'd love you to talk about that. And then as a follow-up, I'd love you to talk about the do's and don'ts yes. of somebody pitching, what to do and what not to do. Well, I sort of explained it earlier, but I mean, I, I think now it's even more clear. I you know, that's, that's a very important moment for the person pitching. So I never, you know, I get there are other networks that have reputations for everyone writing and not looking up, never laughing. I, I've never been in another pitch in another network, but apparently... We tend to at Fox be one of the friendlier places to pitch. I know that a lot of people bring their writers to us first to kind of let them see not to be worried about it. Um, and I, you know, I, like I said, I try to host a talk show. I always take a deep breath before I go in the room and smile and come in. I like to come in laughing, even if I'm pretending that's something that I do a lot. Like I'll just be sad and standing outside the door and be like, okay, open the door and laugh. I come in and say, Hey, you know, and try to make a joke. And if there's someone I know, like you're in there, I would make fun of you like for a minute to make everyone laugh. You're or, good at that. Yeah. Or just sort of, you know, the, like I would just be like, oh, I like those shoes, but you know, it's something. And then everyone laugh. And then I would, I do like f- five minutes of small talk. I sometimes tell an embarrassing story that happened to me or, you know, just something. And, and then I, and then I try to gracefully say like, well, the one that I always say is like, how did you guys all get together? Because it's usually a big group. And then that will lead into the thing. I always laugh. I don't always listen, but I'm always listening enough that I can laugh or that I can, you know, I try to ask questions as it's going or if there's something really funny in the pitch, I'll be like, that's really funny. I love that. Um, I, you know, I just try to create like 
a fun atmosphere. Like that's what I do. That's what I tell my people to do. They watch me. Unfortunately, they have to watch me do it every day of their lives. And so they've all seen and know how to do it. And I just try to be really gracious. And if I love something, I buy it in the room. And that's cool. Like that's the best thing. When you get to buy a pitch, I just bought a pitch a couple days ago from these people who was a really funny pitch and weird and who knows what it'll be, but it was great. And there were two young guys that came from the kids world and had never really pitched a network before. And like halfway through, I was like, just so you know, you're, we're doing this. It's, this is sold. You don't have to be worried. And they were so happy. They didn't really understand. And it was cool. And that's, that's the best is when you can just buy be like, that's fucking funny. I like that. That's weird. Let's do that. That's the best. And for those in the audience, I just want to share this. This is the fascinating thing about uh, Susanna's job is that if there's young people who come in the room and for her to green light something and say we're doing this, it's no risk for Susanna because the most that she'll probably have to pay for the script is maybe for a young group, maybe seven, a young writer, maybe $75,000. Sometimes we split it. Yeah. Too, so with the studio. Right? Yeah. And so you're talking about if she's, if the studio brings it in or if they do it as a studio thing together, or they kiss in the studio. So what is that? $37,500 is her commitment. So the great part is she can go into a meeting like that and she can love somebody and she can make a commitment and she doesn't have to go to Kevin or Gary or, you know, or Dana because it's $37,500 or it's $75,000. And I know that might sound like a lot to some people out there. But to the studio or the network that has millions of dollars in their development budget, it's literally like cab fare. So you can make these small bets on people sometimes. And and if they don't come up with greatness and you're an executive and you lose $37,000 or $75,000, it's not the end of the world. No one's going to fire you for that. Now, however, when Brian Grazier comes into a pitch... And you green light it in the room, you know that Brian Grazier's executive producer fee is probably twice the $75,000 that you gave to the young writer. And that's just his fee. Yeah, it's that's, expensive. That's sometimes. not the writer's fee. So you could you, somebody could come in with a pitch and uh, Susanna will probably disagree with me. But you might know when you accept that that this is a million dollars here. Yeah. This is this writer. More th- now than th- ever. This writer probably he's done so many things. He's probably got to make five hundred thousand or three fifty. This guy has to make this. The director's attached. Shit, this is nine hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars. And so it's a different thing. And if that doesn't go, then you are on the firing line. Yeah, definitely. And so and so that's the thing. So I'm sorry. Keep going. So that's that's what I do. That's, you know, and I'll just say on the the small pitch front, that's my one of my favorite parts of the job, because I have it's like weird bragging, I guess, to say this. But, for example, I don't know if, you know, Agnew and Jornet, they are they ran Wolford this year and they're they're amazing, incredible. I was bought their first pitch that somebody everyone around town passed on. Because they had like five of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Like I was hysterically laughing. I don't even remember. Actually, that ended up being good script, but I've bought a lot, uh, purchased a lot of things from them that were crazy. And, but there, I gave them their first shot. 
they're my good friends now. I've developed with them every year. Relationships. And it cre- created such a great relationship for me and them. And, and like now I, I have hopefully we're going to green light another project from them very soon. I just think that I think could be the best family show we've ever done. So they're, you know, the, that's what's really cool about my job is that I can I can be in pitches with people. I, I, I bought a pitch from a young team last year that I was like, I the script ended up being good, not great, but they're going to do something great. Like I know. So. You know, that's what's cool about that part. Do you, are you the kind of person that like when somebody you develop with somebody, they come up with a thing, it's great, but then the execution doesn't work and the script doesn't work and you pass on it immediately. Do you go to them and say, look, this didn't work this time. Let's just renew for another year. I'll give you another 75,000 and let's just cut the bullshit and you're already all set for next year. I do do that sometimes. I don't do as many blinds as I used to do. That's Explain called a blind. the definition a of blind a blind. blind means you're assigning a writer a script without an idea attached. I don't do as many blinds just because I haven't just I haven't had great luck with those, but what I always say to the studio or whatever is like I would like to hear their idea first. Let me know what they're working on and then sometimes I'll just hear the pitch first and buy it but I, I make blinds now and then but I've never I feel like the idea is so important and I I just I've never had a lot of luck with blind script deals so I don't make as many as as a lot of other people do got it okay so now tell us the do's okay. and don'ts of pitching and and explain with examples of things okay. that have gone well and why they've gone well and explain why I can talk about somebody, this for about five hours. Somebody goes into a pitch and you want to buy a handgun. <laughs> Here's the thing. I th- there are all different kinds of pitching styles. There are people who read every word. Dave Walpert, um, who's a great writer and really good at pitching, he reads every word and it's a presentation and you do not interrupt him. You do not stop him. You do, you know, and he's a great pitcher. He's very well thought out and he reads. That's fine. There are people like Mitch Hurwitz, who's one of the funniest, fantastic people I've ever met in my life who comes in and you don't even, you're not even really sure what television show he's talking about, (laughs) but you're laughing so hard. You can't really believe that you're laughing this hard. And that's a, that's a very specific and special kind of style. Reading is always fine with me. I have no problem. A lot of people are like, oh, I have to read from notes. I have no problem with that. I'm smart enough to know how to listen. Do not read for 45 minutes. I'd say if you're going to pitch a half hour, you need to pitch for 25 minutes your show. At the most. At the most. Maybe 30 if it's the best pitch that's ever been done, if it's The Graduate or whatever. And the least amount? You know, I mean, if, if it's an easy show to understand or explain, I mean, you can do 15 minutes. I can ask questions. And then if I need more information. But I think don't get cute. Do the show. Explain the show. I personally have like, I do not like the... um where people act out the parts in the room. They're very small rooms and it's very intimate to be sitting five feet from someone who's acting like the character. I don't love that, but it's some people do it and it's fine. It's not, I would say just talk honestly. If it's if if now sometimes you go in and there's the showrunner writer who created it with a stand up comedian and the showrunner writer is unlike Mitch where they're just a setup guy to the comedian. The comedian does a little shtick about the thing. That's okay. Doing their stand up is fine. It's the why. Yes, Billy, (laughs) I do have a show idea for you like that. I don't like. Um, I said this on my panel yesterday too. 
don't start talking about all the viral opportunities for your show if you haven't figured out your show. <laughs> like, figure out your show. That's my pet peeve is really when people are like, they pitch something, just they don't really know the show. And then they go, but listen, we're going to have a great Facebook thing because we're going to create a profile for each of these characters. I'm like, just please figure out your show. And then we'll talk. We have a whole department here dedicated to figuring out how to do that. Like you, you, all you are responsible for is a great television show. Like we'll figure everything else out. Um, I think, you know, being able to talk about your characters and why they're different from other characters that are on TV. There's nothing worse than people coming in and just pitching like for some reason, people pitch type A girls who used to be fat a lot, which I'm like, that's Monica. Like someone already did that. That's a brilliant character that was amazing a long time ago. Like I think people have a hard time, especially with women, figuring out female characters that are interesting and have layers. And and I think that's all your characters. You should have something to say about them that is very it's just cool and specific and, and weird and funny that you haven't heard before. If you're just saying, like, he's a Paul Rudd type, he's an everyman, and then moving on to the next person, that's that's not a great... Uh, to, for me, that's not what we're looking for at Fox. Got it. And, and so what I wanted to ask you next was about this uh, situation that most people in the room do on the other side, on the network side mm -hmm. or the studio side, which I have no understanding of. Oh, good. What? Every single one has that notebook right. that they're we writing in. We don't do that. I'm like... I don't understand the notebook. Everybody who comes in and pitches has their whole thing written out that they send you or can send you. Why does every single person have that notebook? Well, in my company, one in the person notebook? has a notebook. It's never me. And they, they rotate. So one person writes. Um, and why aren't they, if they are going to write, why aren't they on a laptop and just typing? That's true. I guess we could have, but that'd be distracting, wouldn't it? If like, I'll just no, say. This is like therapy. It's like these people <laughs> writing this stuff down. I'm thinking, is she writing down? This guy sucks. I'm I used gonna... to do that in my notes. <laughs> Don't want to be like, you better shut up. But um, that was a long time ago. I, the what, here's what happens a lot. When you hear nine pitches a day and I'm negotiating in business affairs, trying to figure out like how much I'm going to pay for something. It's competitive. Another network wants it. I sometimes I'm like, what was that pitch again? Like, or can you remind me of the thing that we love? What was the thing we love? Cause I have to tell my bosses and justify the money. And a lot of times we'll look at the notes and be like, Oh yes, that was great. That was the idea that we love. Like that was it's, we use them when we're, we do use the notes, not for every pitch, but mm -hmm. we use the notes later when we have to create paperwork, when we do log lines for the development report, when we come up with the stories, I use them a lot when they turn in the outline and it's been like three months since I've heard the pitch and I'll be like, well, you get the notes. Didn't they pitch a story that would have been a good pilot? And then we'll look at the notes and they'll say, yeah, that, that thing they said, well, let's make that the pilot story. So we do use the notes, but not everyone in my opinion should be writing. Now, something that I tend to uh, think can help somebody sell something, which is it's it's not as rare as it used to be. Somebody who's actually gone out and shot a trailer yeah, with actors and actresses. And do you find that it's easier for you to buy a show when you see a five minute sizzle reel of what the show is going to be with the characters? Yeah, it or is. But, but one of the hard things is they usually do it with actors that you couldn't get. 
Like what that doesn't help me. Like if it's unless the writing in that is just so great, it's like, okay, I obviously want to work with this writer and whoever we cast will be great. But like if you shoot with all your friends and your friends happen to be Amy Poehler and you know, it, it doesn't, that doesn't, I can't, I'm not going to get Amy. You Kohler, would prefer so. to see a sizzle reel with unknown actors showing the example. Yeah, I guess. Or just, I like a sizzle reel, but I, do, I don't think it's so additive one way or the other for me. So, okay. So a hundred percent pie. Okay. Uh-huh. Tell me what percentage of pitches you buy where people are reading from the notes. Tell me what percentages the pitches you buy, like Mitch Hurwitz, where he's just coming in and there's no notes and he's just organic. And tell me how many pitches you buy from people who come in with a sizzle reel. People, I I would say only hear 20% of people have a sizzle reel. So, you know, maybe two a year of those. And then I'd say it's about 50-50 of the other. You know, people can read. If it's really funny and good what they're reading, I'll buy it. And with Mitch, too, or someone like Mitch, who else is a really good picture? I'm trying to think that's just really... You know, Chuck Tatham is a great picture. It's really funny. I know Chuck's body of work. I, I've read his writing. I know, you know, so that's another, that's another way of doing it. But I'd say it's about 50-50, the reading. If you have good shit and you need to read it, read it. It's fine. If you, you know, you're flim flamming your way around and you're just going to kind of talk, don't do that. You know, so it's, it's, it's 50, 50, I'd say. Okay. So you, so you're at Fox, you're moving up. Tell me how you get to the next level from the assistant. Right. Some assistant. Well, I, I worked for Tracy and she was so great. And actually Marcy Ross, who was the new head of current at the time was hiring a current coordinator, uh, used to be, we do this a little less now, but used to be, you would have a dedicated coordinator in the department who didn't have to answer phones, but who wasn't quite an executive. It was kind of a middle step. And, um, I, I had that job in current. Marcy gave me that job. And explain what a current executive does. A current executive at the time, um, Fox was divided into the development department who is in charge of developing all the new shows. And then they would, as soon as the show was announced in New York in May, they would hand it off to the current executive who would be in charge of maintaining that show throughout the whole, the entire run. It could be five years. It could be seven years and development would kind of quickly phase off and start on a new and start on the new slate. Um, and so Marcy ran that department and, and Marcy was over comedy and drama So I was her current coordinator, I guess, for a year. And then I got promoted to be manager, which is real executive. And I had actual show coverage. And I covered Arrested Development that year. I covered Malcolm. I covered Bernie Mac. I covered Prison Break, which was a joke. Or maybe that was the next year. I don't know. I should not have been covering a drama. I didn't understand. (laughs) I was not good at that. Oh, I covered Boston Public with Jason Kadams. Jason Kadams is the only person in my career who's ever called me and told me I gave too many notes. (laughs) On Boston Public, this is funny. On Boston Public, it it been on for like seven years. It was David Kelly's show. The guy who gave it to me, who was covering it before me, said, I give three notes on the rough cut, and that's it. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. He's like, just watch the rough cut, give three notes. They feel heard. That's all they want. Great. So I... I'm like a fourth episode. I hear the... And you don't give the notes to David Kelly or Jason Kadams. You gave it to like somebody... I don't know, post-production person or something. And I was giving notes and accidentally one of my notes was sort of two parts just because I was like, oh, maybe you could do this. So I gave four notes. And the next day, Jason Kadams on my phone sheet. <laughs> and I'm like, how's weird? He never calls me. Like, what does Jason Kadams want? He's such a nice guy. He's the nicest guy in the world. And he's like, hey, uh, 
and he's talking and I'm like, what's going I like, don't know what, if, usually they call you if they want something or need something. I'm not unsure. And he's just kind of talking, talking. And I'm like, where is he going with this? And then finally he's like, you know, they just feel like you're giving a lot of notes and maybe you should need to give less notes. And I was like, okay. And I was so embarrassed and it felt so bad. And then I was like, oh yeah, I guess I gave four notes. I was only supposed to give three. That was the rule. And I accidentally gave four notes and Jason called me and he was so nice. He obviously, the and I said to him, oh, I, I just, I guess I gave one extra note. And he was like, oh, okay. I don't think he really knew. How, they just said to him, like, she's way over noting us. So that's why he called me. But I don't think that he never knew that it was only four notes. So yeah, he called me. I, I shouldn't have been covering dramas. Maybe they weren't good notes. I don't know. Let me tell you something. If you're giving three <laughs> notes on something, I've never been in any project in the history of the world where somebody gave three or four notes. You didn't give Dave Kelly notes at that time. I you remember I remember I had a show with Dave Chappelle uh, and Peter Tolan, who uh, uh, you guys might know as the yeah. showrunner for Rescue Me with Dennis Leary and the creator of the show. <laughs> And the network run through got through and uh, Jamie Tarsus sits down with Peter, Dave, myself, and one other writer. And she looked at Peter and she, you know, they have, when you're doing half hour comedy, when they have their script, they fold over pages and they're writing on each thing. And you can tell when you look at a script how many pages are folded right. I don't over. I do that, but yes. Because it's Somebody like you could tell how many notes, if it's like really big or if it's really small. And there were a lot of folded <laughs> over pages. And I could see Peter Tolan looking at that. And she just said to him, she said, look, uh, I think uh, things are great. Um, I have a few uh, notes here. And he stood up. Before she even got to her first note, I think she was starting on the first note, which was something that he felt was insignificant. And he stood up and he threw his script at her. It hit her in the legs and <laughs> fell down to the thing. And he said, then get another fucking writer. And he just walked out and we're sitting there. Huh. And, uh, I'll never forget that because um, I know what he was doing. He was like a uh, an NBA basketball coach arguing with the referee, knowing that he's not going to change the call, but, <laughs> but for the next, the next, the one, next yeah. one. Exactly. And he was that powerful that he could do that and he could get away with it. And he knew that he, if he could make those people feel uncomfortable, they would give him less notes and he knew if he could be successful, no one would fuck with him. And that's the mantra of a lot of showrunners that they can be difficult if they're really successful yeah, because once you hit number one, you don't care. And so you keep moving up, moving up. What's the next step? What's the next position? So then I get to, I get back to development. Now I'm in current for a couple of years and then I get back to development and Susan Levison was the head of the department then. And Jonathan Davis, who's now the president of 20th was above me. And it was Susan and Johnny and I, and this younger executive. And we did development together for three years, including the strike, which was a huge seismic shift in the business. I think the strike, I don't know if it was, but it was a very big shift for us at the network. And that was the third year was the strike. 
And then Johnny left to go be at the studio where he's been incredibly successful. And then Susan left. And then I shared the department with another person for six years. And then last year I got the that job. Was, that Mark, was Marcus Wiley. With, with Marcus Wiley. And then last year I got the job. And um, the, then we merged by myself. And then last year, and then we merged current and development this year. And so I am over all half hours, animated, live action, everything I do current. I do development at the network. So that's where I am now. Got it. And you're the senior vice. I'm executive vice president. Executive vice president. I never thought I'd have that, but it's cool. And I think this is important. And I'm sorry to bore you, but I think the audience would love this. Could you explain the uh, trajectory of positions to move up to in network television, starting with intern? You go intern, assistant, then coordinator, then manager. Then director. Some places have executive director. We don't have that at Fox. Then vice president. And vice president is a huge title at Fox because you get a car allowance. You get a parking space. You just get everything is just slightly easier in your life at vice president. You get a big salary bump, too. Then you get senior vice president. And then you get executive vice president. And then president, I guess. That's right. Yeah. How do you feel? Good. It's it's cool. You know, it's cool to be to have started there and be where I am now. And, you know, it's a lot of work. This is a huge job. This is my first year of doing this job. I have seven direct reports. You know, I used to four. I have it's definitely going to be a hard year. I think I'm glad to be here in Montreal because I feel like when I get back, it's just the shit's going to hit the fan and it'll be nice to kind of this is like a nice reset, but it's going to be an important year for me. And I have two new bosses, so it's going to be a really important year for me. And I need some shows to work. Uh, you will. True <laughs> serum in your veins. I could be a network president somewhere in television or I'm not ready yet to be a network president. No way. I mean, there's, there's no way. That is the hardest job. I, I don't know that I could do that job. I really don't. Not a broadcast network president. The way the broad the networks are now, it's so hard. I've seen it too close. It's it's a life ruiner. It really is. Well, I think what happens is you go to become a network president, and you believe that your job will be creatively to make a difference mm. on television. It's all finance meetings, and it's all finance Ugh. and administrative things. And you're like, wait a second, this isn't what I signed up for. Everything I love about my job, I'm already on the teetering path of not being able to do. And at that next step, you don't do any of that. You know, those hearing those little pitches from writers that are unknown, like this year, I probably won't be able to do a lot of that, you know, and that's my favorite thing in the world. you got to sit through a lot of boring ones to get read Eli, but, you know, and, and so Kevin never got to do the stuff that he, that the reason he got into the job, you know, and it just gets worse and worse. And you only make horrible calls. You never get to give anybody good news. You, you I, we really worked hard to make Kevin get to give good news sometimes because we all felt really badly, but like cancellations, time schedule, you know, time shifting, anything bad, they call. And that gets to you after a while. So if you are the visionary, I think you are. (laughs) Well, what's your goal for a year from now? If we were to sit down, what's your vision of what's going to happen at the network with the new things that nobody knows about that might not even have come in the room yet. If, if you, if something were to happen 
a year from now and people could see the things that let's just say a year and a half if you don't mind because the stuff has to go yeah that'd be great that would be easier so what's your vision of what you see as a success for that year and a half what you see as okay this is just status quo and what would you say is a failure very scared about this but i i I, am a year ago i started doing this if anyone who listens to this but if you've listened this far you get to hear this i started doing this management thing that david allen wrote called gtd which is called getting things done and one of his it's an amazing thing and everyone who's listening if you are procrastinator you have trouble you should do this it's changed my whole life but anyway i started doing it and he's a big believer in setting horizon you set these goals so i set some department goals this year and look my number one goal has always been to have the number one show on tv like you talk about two and a half men you talk about modern family how how amazing to develop big bang theory like how incredible well this is what's weird about modern family where was modern family developed yeah at 20th but it didn't get on the Fox well, network. That's a long, Kevin could talk about that in his podcast. But um, I, so how incredible would that be? That would be amazing. So that's my goal. It feels almost impossible, but that is my goal. That's always been my goal in this job. I want to have the number one show on TV. For a second, when New Girl premiered, it felt like we could have that. Like it was in our hands for a lot of reasons that didn't end up working out. But like that was a great feeling. The other thing I've done it once with Arrested, I'd like to win the Emmy for Best Comedy. Like that's a huge goal of mine. I thought we might get nominated this year with Brooklyn and we didn't end up. It was really heartbreaking. Um, but I have a show. I, I think I still think Brooklyn could grow and become a big hit. I love the show. Um, and then I have some shows in development. You know, I love my Mulaney show. I think it's going to be an acquired taste. But John Mulaney. With John Mulaney and Martin Short. And I don't know that it's going to be like a huge out of the box hit, but we're doing some of the most inventive sitcom episodes I've ever done. Um, so, and I have one show in development I don't want to talk about, but I have, well, I guess I can, it's with starring Will Forte that I think could be a game changer. So it's still, we haven't tried it yet. We have six scripts, but I think it's a really good show. So I'd love in a year and a half to be sitting here talking to you about my Emmy nomination for whatever, you know, or having won the Emmy and have the one number one show on TV. That's uh-huh. the goal. That's the dream, right? Well, I think you're going to accomplish your dream. So we're going to do a little word association okay. here. I'm going to mention something. You can tell me one sentence, one little thing on anything I mention, okay. any person or whatever. Raising hope. That was one of the best pitches I've ever heard. Greg Garcia is incredible. I forgot about Greg. He came and pitched the whole show. I'm so proud of that show. It just it couldn't catch on, but I loved it. And Martha Plimpton was amazing. Got it. Bob's Burgers. That's my, that is my baby show. I love that show. Lauren Broussard and Jim Dotruve who run that show. I love it. Everyone should watch. It's so good. We might win the Emmy this year for animated. We got nominated. The Mindy Project. Mindy is a genius and it's the funniest show I have right now. I love it. Nice. Lauren Michaels. Well, I'm working with Lauren. I know. In the last year, I have twice had to give him notes. <laughs> Do you know how horrible it is? The idea that I'm even allowed to talk to Lauren Michaels, <laughs> much less like I'm giving him like Kevin's like, just tell Lauren. I'm like, 
really? Like I'm gonna get on the phone and give no. It, that is, I, I, my dress. I sweat through the whole dress. Like I had to go home and change afterward. He was lovely. I think he and I just the way I give notes. I'm, I, I'm not an asshole about it. I don't fold pages. I just talk and I. I he's but you know what i love him he's cool he's fun to talk to and like I'm, i've enjoyed it but it's it's stressful <laughs> is he the person in your business that you find because of his success level it creates the most anxiety him and tina fey i did a script uh pilot with tina fey this year and I, I, same thing. I shouldn't even be talking to her. The fact that I am telling her I don't like this cold open and she's like listening to me is a fucking joke. Like she should, she, and she was so not, so nice and so involved. And she was like nodding her head like I was making sense. And I was like, no, Tina and Lauren this year, those, after I said though, I've done that, I can do anything. Cause I idolize Tina Fey, like to worship her. And like that I was, it, it, it's incredible, but she's cool. Bernie Mac. You know, I was just thinking about him. You know, it's I I think that that's sad. It's sad. I I sometimes forget that he's no longer here. And he that he was he was a one of a kind. Did you know him at all? Yes. He was just he was a true gentleman and Amazing. just a special guy. 23 years before he made it. Yeah. Really yeah, made just it. loved his wife like just he was he always smelled amazing. Best smelling man I ever not a hair out of place. I won't tell your husband that. <laughs> no, he was he was cool. Yeah, he's he had it all put together. He did. He was a neat guy. Uh, Marty Edelstein, Prison oh Break, executive producer. Can I tell you a quick story? Do we yes, have time? Yes, please. I went to visit the set of Prison Break in Joliet, and Marty, I was in Joliet, and Marty looks at me and goes, "You like gambling?" And I, I do. He goes, "Let's go." He had Transpo take us to the Riverboat Casino in Joliet. Marty and I, and we were, he played craps. He was playing like thousand dollars, like, you know, he's all this money on craps. I was like playing $5 blackjack and he won $9,000 and he comes over and he goes, look, we got to go. We got to go. And I'm like, okay. And he like runs out and he's like, I thought those guys were going to kill me. Cause he had $9,000 in chips. And like, he was like, grab me. And we went out of the Joliet. Cause you know, he's fun. And I if you know Marty. Marty, you don't picture him running. He No, he was like, we got to go. And I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, I thought those guys were going to kill me. The new girl. That's, I'm so proud of that show too. And Liz Merriweather's awesome. And I think we're going to have a great season this year. Arrested development. That's the biggest heartbreak and pride of my career. I think that, you know, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but it doesn't matter how great a show is written. It doesn't matter how great it's run. It doesn't matter how great it's produced. If, if the characters are not huggable and lovable, in my humble opinion you'll never go to number one. You have That's to have at least, true. you have to have at least, I'd say 33% of the characters being huggable and lovable. You can't go have a whole show where not one character you want to hug. And, you know, I having worked on Whitney yeah. uh, for two years, I, you know, when you're casting a show, the goal is twofold. You find somebody who's huggable, lovable, is a great actor, or you find the best actor on the board, 
like an NFL draft for mm-hmm. that role, whether they're huggable and lovable or not. And when we were doing Whitney, we we're taking these characters and realized that the way that the actors and actresses were, and this is no fault, but it's just how they were written and how the actors were that portrayed them. Most of them were not huggable and lovable. And I think if Whitney were sitting here, I think she would realize that maybe she wasn't as huggable and lovable as she normally could be and has been. And so you end up with maybe Chris D'Elia being huggable and lovable and maybe the new character that was brought on, who's an extraordinary young comedian actor, Tone Bell, Mm. uh, who just booked another show, uh, Bad Judge. Um, And so I think that's what can bring you down. Um, And I think that's what brought down Arrested Development. I think it was also ahead of its time. I don't think it would, maybe you're right, it would have never been the number one show on TV, but if there was ever a show made for Twitter and for Facebook and, you know, it just, but it didn't exist then. Got it. Um, Let's just do a few more things if you don't mind. No problem. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. They're being honored here. That's one of the reasons I'm here. Um, That's been a great experience. I always wanted to do a cop show. Every year we would do our targets. And I go, let's, what about this year? Let's really crack a cop show. And so the fact that when I went on the set of the pilot and it was a cop precinct, I got goosebumps. I was like, that's so cool. I've wanted to do this for a long time. And I think they're really, hopefully this year is going to be a huge year for them. We're off to a good start. And this is something I don't understand. And I want to share it with you. I have a mantra on the show that I would say anything if anybody was here or not. When I saw the pilot to the show and I saw the script of the show, uh-huh. the first thing I said was, I, I just don't understand. You have a network that's one of the most cutting edge networks in the world. You have an artist who is known to be one of the most original and unique voices right. in comedy. Oh my God, you're giving me notes? Oh, it's, too, it's, it's, it's too late. <laughs> this is for, happening. It's too late for notes. <laughs> and yet... Both entities are working on a show that, in theory, the formula of the show is almost a parody of every formula of a cop show that's and cop movie that you've seen. Are you trying to feel, say it's safe for you? That's what I'm saying. So I thought that I didn't understand why the network and Andy Samberg and the executive producers who could write anything, they're, they're geniuses and a network that makes unbelievable original <laughs> shows. I didn't understand why Andy Samberg was in a situation where he's like, let me look at all the ideas that I can do. Okay, let me do a cop show in a precinct. Listen, you know, I, I love that. People might say Barney Miller was a cop show in a precinct. People might point to every single lethal weapon uh, movie or anything that shows these interactions and things. As an artist, he could he has a choice of so a landscape like of everything. I felt like it was a formula that had been done over and over and over again. And yes, fucking hilarious. Right, good cast. Incredible casting. Yeah great writing i just didn't understand why at a contrarian network that does amazing things that have never been done before you know glee you got these things that and then i just didn't understand like why are we why is andy and the network they could they could pair together to do anything why are they doing 
a cop show inside a precinct. I, I felt like it's a great way to do workplace and it's a great way to go out. And I thought you could have big heightened characters and have fun. I, I never, agree with never, everything you're saying. It's never occurred to me that it was safe of all the thousands of notes I've received on that show. I never thought about that. I, I it's the safest. It's the safest. I, but but don't you think even Modern Family you could say it was a very safe and but it's just well done and so it works. So why? How how, how here we're going toe to toe. This is this is good. <laughs> this is good. Modern Family. How many of the characters in Modern Family are stereotypical characters that we've seen over time so in the wait, past you're thirty saying years? Andre Brower, a gay black captain no. in the precinct. That's not a stereotypical no, character. No, I'm not saying that. Terry Crews is not a stereotypical character. I don't think. I think maybe Jake is. I think Jake Peralta, Andy's character, it's not stereotypical, but certainly it, it is an homage to Mel Gibson. And, and that's what I'm like, pointing to. It's like it's like I'm pointing to the main guy okay. who created the show with the people whose face. You can't say Julie like, Bowen's character is that. No, but I'm talking about you know. the in Modern Family. If I'm not mistaken, although Sophia Vergara, I can never pronounce her right. names. Uh, Sophia, of, everyone knows who you're talking about. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> she was uh, attached to Modern Family, yes. I believe, but she's not an executive no, producer cast and a creator. Yes. So Steve Levitan, his partner, right. um, Chris, Chris Lloyd. Lloyd, they created the show as writers, creators. Well, Andy signed on to Jake. You know, Andy was not part of the development process. Is he an executive producer? He's a producer. Show? He's not an executive producer. Okay. He's a producer. Does, he signed on to play Jake. He liked the part. Does he have creative input on the show? Yeah, a little bit. On, okay. I mean, yeah, I, he, I, they talked about it yesterday. Yeah. He so, does. so the people on Modern Family, they're not creatively no, involved in the that. show. So the point I'm trying to make is that Andy voice. is a is a comic face, is the face of comedy of, of a lot of people's generation. Well, I generation. guess you're going to have to ask him on his yeah. podcast. I will. I will ask him <laughs> because, and I, 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 I'm saying this, and I say this to you because I actually love the show, and I love everything about the show. I'm just commenting on the fact that I just didn't understand when you had a chance to do anything, would you do something that you think had never been done before would as a character? Would you say the same about Parks and Rec and Amy? Yes, I would. Mm -hmm. I would. I didn't. I didn't understand. Why do that? Why be a bureaucrat? Why play a? I just didn't understand, and I didn't understand why. And it seems so similar in format to to the office that I just I didn't understand it. But that doesn't mean that I don't love the show and love watching her and Joe from Sewage go toe to toe with each other. Right. I mean, I you know, I love it, uh, but I just. And and she's successful. And it's working. Andy, this show is going to go four years. I hope so. And so whatever. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm taking so long, but I thought it was it's important fine. to and talk about. You get a them. note. You want to give your note? I get it. I it was it was it was. <laughs> Everybody less, wants to give their note. It was less than three notes. <laughs> Jason Kadams won't call you. Uh, um, <laughs> all right. So heading into the final roundup. Okay. Tell me uh, your biggest disappointment in show business. Huh. Well, I feel like I swim in a sea of disappointments and failures sometimes. Uh, biggest disappointment. <sighs> wow. I, uh, probably arrested. Because I, I thought once we won the Emmy, I really thought, oh, OK, because that was back when you thought that mattered. And I really thought that would be 
that I just thought I, but ironically now it is what I thought it would be. I was just in, in a retreat and someone was like, well, like my favorite show is Arrested Development. I was like, why didn't you watch it when it was on? Like, um, but that I think probably that was really hard. I was young and full of hope dashed my hope. Well, I look at you and you, you have hope. And <laughs> yes. so, and so that's, what's great about being around you. Now, what's fascinating is, is that your goal is to have a show that wins an Emmy but the first show you were involved in that got an Emmy created a huge disappointment yeah. for you. Well, I want to have both. I want to have the, like Modern, you know, the number one show on TV and win the Emmy. It's pretty awesome. It is awesome. Even Big Bang. I take a Big Bang. All right. <laughs> What's your proudest moment in show business? I would say probably winning the Golden Globe for Brooklyn. That was cool because it was a shock. It, it was like we were shocked to be nominated and it was it was that was awesome. That was an amazing night. Tell me a show that you greenlit that's on the air that you fought hard for that other people in the department. Bob's Burgers. I, I laid on the ground and begged and pleaded and rolled around. Do you know Peter Engel laid on the ground in front of Brandon <laughs> Tartikoff's office for Saved by the Bell and yeah, it worked? it worked. And I, the fact that we're making 88 episodes of Bob's, where it's, it, that is my, that is, I'm really proud of that. Tell me a show that you passed on that is a hit on another network. Thankfully, I don't have... I, pa I I'm going to tell the honest truth. I passed on hearing the pitch for happy endings and I was in a panic. That's why I hear every pitch. Now I never pass on hearing pitches. Jamie Tarsus called me and she was like, we have this young writer, David Cashman. I was like, eh, I don't want to hear it. And that was, I was, I felt bad about that. But I, right now I don't have a show that I passed on. That's a hit. I don't think we didn't pass on Modern Family. So we never heard it. So I don't have any. Tell me a show that you put all your your belief in and you believe that this pitch, this is the greatest thing and it got to a pilot and it and it got on the air and it just for some reason nothing. And you just put, you really believed in it. Well, there was an animated show I made 13 episodes of called Murder Police with Jason Ruiz and David Goodman. I love that show. And Kevin hated it. He would say that here and he didn't want to air it, but now we might air it, but it's, I really love that show and he, nobody else did. I really love my animated show, Alan Gregory with Jonah Hill too. People hated it. And I go, I don't understand. I think it's great. And people really did not like that, that was, show. Was that the Jared Paul show? Yes. Jared and Andy. I thought that show was so funny. French Stewart. I loved that show. I'm trying to think of live action shows that I, oh, I really loved Enlisted. My my military last year with Mike Royce and Kevin Beagle and I love Enlisted and Mike Royce did the podcast for for a number of reasons we didn't schedule it right and I'm disappointed because I think that show could have been that's a show that does what you're saying that it could have been huge I think it could have been huge too and again people would say I'm a hypocrite because why aren't I arguing that uh, a show about the military base is something that's been done Those before types were different but maybe. that was a show that had a unique voice and things but i i actually thought my note on that was that it was promoted improperly i totally agree 100 percent. and that's um, my fault i take responsibility that's your fault yep okay <laughs> wow put your name on it <laughs> i love that um tell me one story a holy shit story or something about seth mcfarland and family guy i 
covered Family Guy for three years. The most fantastic show to cover. Going to those table reads, I, I would have paid to go to those table reads when Seth was there. One time we had a broadcast standards um, meeting afterward. There was some issue. Oh, it's the great. It's it's the one where Stewie goes to hell. And in hell, there's like a guy that wants him to give up. He goes, oh, this isn't bad. And it's just a room. And then um, like Bob Hope or somebody comes out and makes him give him a blowjob. And he's like, oh, God, this is terrible. It's like a horrible thing about hell. So we're, <laughs> we're saying it's so funny. So the broadcast standards people are like, we can't have a baby giving a Bob Hope. It wasn't Bob Hope, but whoever it was, a blowjob. So I'm arguing with them because I'm trying to be like, all right, well, what could we do? Because it was so funny this the way seth was like oh this isn't so bad and then it's like oh this is anyway so i'm like what could we do and i'm talking to the broadcast standards lady and seth is sitting at the head of the table and he's like dueling on his script <laughs> and i'm like well can we show just his head going down like we're talking and seth turns over his script and on the back of the script he sketched the entire cell of what it's going to look like what the bed is going to look like what hell's going to in in one minute he's drawn the whole scene and he's like would it be okay if we did it this way and the, and i was so taken by like just the talent like the talent in his tiny finger is more than like <laughs> it, it was so everyone in the room just stopped and was like did you drop it was incredible i mean he he's a, from another time he's like leonardo he has every skill he can write he's can sing he can draw he's the best voiceover i mean he's he's really talented he's crazy but he's really talented and a guy whose show was canceled twice twice and persevered yeah and you know he his agents fired him tracy gave him a script that year he didn't have a lot of money i mean that's hilarious to think about now but he was like kind of going broke and tracy gave him and ricky blood script just to help them out and Ricky Blit, another guy to do yeah. the podcast here. Oh, he did do yes. it? Oh, that must have been good. I'm going to listen to that. It was wonderful. I love Ricky. All right. All right, uh, cool. Last question. If you, uh, you know, the people listening uh, on this podcast, uh, they're from all over the world. They're in all different professions. And if you were to give any advice to any young artist, actor, writer, mm -hmm. director, producer, what would it be to get to the next level to somebody who can come in and blow you away and get on television and make you a hero along with them? Please. And what advice do you have for the young executive who's starting as an intern or a young manager or a young it's trying the same to work advice. their way up? Show up every day and you have to do the work. Read everything. Nothing drives me crazy more than writers who don't read other people's scripts or read pilots. Like read everything and show up every day and do the work. I've just shown up every day. That's all, It's really not super. I read everything. I have a point of view and I show up. That's all you got to do, I think. And for artists, that's all that they got to do. I is think just so. Show. I think you should know every if you're a comic, you want to be a com comic actor. You should know every comic actor you should know what's going on. I think you should come to things like this in Montreal. I think. Be a part of the community. All thank right, you thanks, so Barry. much. I'm so grateful. And again, I'd like to thank my first sponsor ever, Global Cash Card, for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. All right. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.